You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast, and we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can always send them to our mailbag at Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. That's Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com, and we'll see how many we can actually get on the show. But today, you know I love stories, especially a good story. Stories that show strength of character, rising it above it all, and in Mara's case, she'll tell us it's all about her journey and it's all about love. And uh, when I heard Mara's story, I said, I must talk to this amazing person. Mara B. Gold is the author of The Color of Love, a story of a mixed-race Jewish girl. She's also a Hollywood producer. Mara, how are you today? I am very well, Rabbi. Thank you for having me on the show. I am so happy that I am able to finally talk to you. I read your book. I I appreciated the story. To say I love the story, it's hard to say you love a story for somebody like yourself who had to suffer. But hopefully, yes. hopefully people can learn from your story. But as I hope so. Yes, that's what we're looking for. But first things first. Who is Mara B. Gad? Um, well, as you said, I, in terms of vocation, I produce film and television independently here in L.A., um, and now I am also a writer, which, which is certainly something that I never imagined being able to say. Um, you know, I'm also a daughter. I am a sister. I am a very proud auntie to two nieces and a nephew. Um, I am a proud, committed, reformed Jew. I'm trying to think of what else I am. Um, I'm a lover, as opposed to uh, some of the other choices that we can make in the world. Um, and and I'm a grateful, grateful being on this planet. How's that? That was amazing. And me <laughs> sitting behind a microphone, I can assure you, a few years ago, I never could have imagined. But we we live, we love, and we see where life takes us. So, and, and that's the beauty of it. Not, you know, if I had locked myself into um, one vision of what my life could have been, I would never be here. And so I'm grateful that I, I had enough, enough uh, elasticity in me to, to sort of go with what life was bringing me. That is such an interesting word. I would have said strength. But why, <laughs> did, why did you use that word? Elasticity, um, if I pronounce it right. Yeah, I mean, I think the beauty of being elastic is that there is movement in that, right? That when something is elastic, it means it stretches, it moves around things. Um, and so by allowing my life to be elastic, it, it meant that I could stretch myself, sometimes literally, sometimes metaphorically, to, um, to accommodate, to figure out, to adjust to what was happening. All right, so... Again, and I and I hope people are going to pick up the book. We're talking about it, The Color of Love by uh, Mary Begad. 
why did you write the book? It's There are parts that are quite painful, and you opened yeah. yourself up. Why did you write the book? You know, I'm turning 50 in a couple of months, and I have always been incredibly private about my life. Um, when I was much younger, it was because the details of my life um, made other people so palpably uncomfortable <laughs> that I didn't feel like there was a space that was a safe, welcoming, warm space to discuss a lot of these things. Um, you know, in 1970, I was the lone brown face in a sea of Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah, that would be um, different. Yeah, and, you know, in Chicago, growing up in Chicago, Chicago was a very segregated city. And, and we did not talk back in the 70s or in the 80s about race in the same way that we do today. We didn't talk about what it is to be biracial in the way that we do today, or multiracial even. Um, and we certainly did not talk about the fact that there was a brown girl in the middle of all of the Ashkenazi Jews. Except when they but, whispered behind your back. Oh, whispered, sometimes they shouted. No, there were plenty of people talking about me and, and certainly talking about my family. Um, but now we are talking about those things. Um, we're talking about it in a larger cultural context. The Jewish community has gotten more and more beautifully diverse. I'm no longer the only brown face. I'm no longer the only non-white face. And so now I felt like there was space to talk about it. Um, and, and you're actually, time. you um, using your words, you're actually not the first I'm putting quotations, brown-faced um, Jewish girl that I've interviewed, actually. Oh, but, interesting. But you are the first one that was born Jewish. That Her name was Rachel Beck. I tried to get it to connect with you. Uh, she was adopted. She's actually from India. But, um, ah, but, but, yes. You know who she is? No, I don't. We'll have to get you guys to connect because you both have similar... Similar stories, similar happenings, but today we're talking Mara. So let, well, let's uh, let's uh, help people get to, from the beginning some background. As I just said, you're Jewish from birth. You're also mixed race. Just give us yeah. a little bit of background so people know what we're talking about. Um, I was born to a young, unmarried, white Jewish girl in New York um, who clearly had had an affair with a black man back in the late 60s. Um, she went to her rabbi when she found out that she was pregnant and said, Rabbi, I cannot keep this baby. But she didn't tell him all of the reasons why. Um, and this particular rabbi had been for a very long time quietly placing Jewish babies that needed homes with Jewish families, um, which was very common back in the, you know, in the 60s and 70s, that clergy and attorneys would, would sort of quietly sort out adoptions. Um, and in the meantime, my parents in Chicago had found out that they were infertile, um, and they connected with this rabbi in New York because a cousin of ours had adopted her two kids through him. And so, you know, the rabbi said, I have a girl due in April. You can have that baby. And um, when I was born on my father's birthday, actually, um, my parents flew to New York to pick me up, and my mom said the attorney's face drained of color because there was a brown curly-haired baby in the crib. And he wanted to make sure that was the right baby. Um, and, you know, my biological mother had not disclosed that her lover was black because she knew back then, unlike today, um, it wasn't likely that a couple 
a white couple in particular would knowingly take a biracial child. Um, and so the rabbi said to my parents, listen, you don't have to take her. This isn't what we didn't know. It was a mistake. You didn't sign up for this. And my parents said, what are you talking about? That's our daughter. And so they took me home to Chicago when I was three days old. That, I mean, that part of the story alone on your parents is, un I hate to say the words unbelievable. It's just they didn't even know who you were. And in my, I use the words colorblind. And your parents were colorblind. All they saw was a wonderful child. Did that, you know, was that the starting point or it just got better? Um, listen, I, I say in my book, and I believe this to be true, that I chose the right family. I chose this family for a reason. I believe that God wanted me with this family. I just had to grow somewhere else. My, my father passed away when um, about 30 years ago. Um, so I, you know, I, I get a little teary to this day when I speak of him. But my parents were remarkable in their capacity to simply love because I existed. Um, and my mother to this day loves that way. My mother loves, my, my parents went on to have two biological children. So I have a brother and a sister um, who are as, you know, white and Ashkenazi as the rest of my family is. Right. Um, my mother loves each of us as we are. She accepts us as we are. And we're all very different, you know. Um, my, my parents embodied unconditional love from the moment they saw me. Um, so, yes, it, for me, having this family got better from there in terms of having the most loving possible, um, what, it, what is the word, like my immediate family. I can't say that the rest of the family was so loving and wonderful. That's a different parents, part of the book. That's a different part of the book. But my parents, my Bubby, my mother's mother, um, my Bubby lived with us growing up and my whole life. My Bubby was the same way. And, um, you know, everybody else had to incur the wrath of my parents and my Bubby if they weren't, if they weren't so nice. That's Which amazing. It's. I mean, it, yeah. it's. It's so. Especially, you know, I'm a teacher. I am. I, I know a lot of people. I see a lot of people. I see children. I see parents. And we, we only wish that that parents. And that's really a parent's job. I, I know from my Absolutely. own personal experience. If a teacher, if a principal were to say something that would be, you know, hurtful, inappropriate to one of my children, so my wife will go fight. She says, my job is to protect my children. And you almost yeah. wish that parents, that all parents understood, your parents understood, this is our daughter, and you have two choices. Either take her the way we accept her, or we're going to have nothing to do with you. We'll just move on That's with right. life. And I will say, my mother, you know, thank God she's with us and healthy. Um, my mother is 75 years old, and my mother will still square up for a fight when she sees one coming. Good. My mother will even say to me when I'm out on the road with my book, um, she'll say, do you need me to come? Really? My mother is still, oh, yes. My mother is still my greatest protector, my greatest defender, um, my greatest source of love and support. My mother is everything. Wow. Amazing. We should yes. all be so lucky to have such good mothers. Yes. That I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so we keep saying the word love. You, you named your book, you called your book The Color of Love. Um, 
Okay, let's just say it straight. Why is love so important, and why was it important that that's the name of the book? Um, you know, I believe that we are here as humans to love and to be loved. I think that's why God created us. And I believe that love is the most powerful force in the universe, more certainly more powerful than hate. Um, and because of the nature of my existence, right, that the misconception is that Jews are white and black people are Christian or Muslim. And so because I exist in a form that really throws quite a few people off, um, I know what it is to be loved unconditionally and deeply, and I know what it is to be hated simply because I exist. And, that, and I don't yeah. use the word hate lightly. I, I truly know what it is to be hated because I exist. And so for me, um, the importance of choosing love and acknowledging that it is a choice, just like hate is a choice, just like intolerance is a choice, just like, just like racism is a choice. Um, love is a choice, and it's a choice that we can make. It's a choice that I fully, warmly embrace and believe in. Um, and so I wanted that to be in the title because that's what I want people to come away with if they choose to read my book, which clearly I hope they do. Yes, we do hope um, they do. Yes, The Color of Love by Mary B. Gad. That's exactly what we're <laughs> looking for people to do. Yes. Uh, um, but but I believe that I, I wanted it up front because I did not want people to think that it wasn't anything other than a love story. Amazing. And and this, I'm sure, this you, you, you know on your own, but the person you are, right, the good, wonderful, wholesome person you are is because you're filled with love. If you'd be filled with hate, then for the most part, there might be some people that like, you know, people that... It's a Yiddish where they rates people on, they get people excited. But people don't like those people. We we appreciate people filled, and that's who you are. You are a, a forget much better person. You are a real person because of it, I hope. I I would like to think I'm as real as they come. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so just to touch, you, you sort of touched on a little bit. Um, so here you're brought home. You're obviously you do not look like a white Ashkenazi Jewish little girl being brought home. And I'm sure all the relatives came to see the new member of the family and their reactions were positive, not so positive? Um, on the whole, not so positive. You know, my parents obviously did not think that there was going to be a big thing made um, because it didn't matter to them. They, they assumed it wouldn't matter to anyone else. And unfortunately, it mattered to almost everyone else. Is that, like, unbelievable? Is that, like, amazing that your parents sat there and said, like, what's the difference? Who cares? Yeah. And they couldn't even fathom that there's lots of people out there that don't think like them. Oh, sure. I mean, in the family, in the neighborhood, at our synagogue, at every turn, people had something to say. Um, And so, you know, certainly there were members of the family who, listen, Schwarze was the first Yiddish word I ever heard, and I was that I learned, right. you know, and right. I was about four when I learned what that meant. Um, there were people who asked that a detective be hired to at least track down my biological mother and make sure that I had been born halachically Jewish. You know, it, it just, the, the range of lunacy around the notion that this small brown baby should should be anything less than a member of the family was, was insane. And my parents, 
position was, this is our daughter, love her as we love her, or you're not welcome. Amazing. And so for them, you know, the family got demonstrably smaller when (laughs) I came along, Um, you know, and out in the world, we together learned how to, how to handle the bullies in the world who felt the same way. Yeah, that was really Um, my, that's why I wanted you to focus on a little bit, you know, to survive, for you to survive growing up, you needed a lot of strength. Even as an adult, we need strength to survive. Certainly what you had well, to go and I needed, I mean, as, as an adult, I've been in therapy for 25 years. Oh, okay. <laughs> once, once I, you know, to your point, growing up this way and knowing that there's this constant swirling of hatred and intolerance and chaos around you, um, at a certain point, it did become the pain of that is so much. Uh, there is, I, I often say to people who ask me what it feels like, that every time I meet a racist or a bully or someone who's intolerant, um, it feels like a truck has broadsided my heart at 75 miles an hour, and I'm not sure if I will breathe again. And, I, and if I do breathe again, I don't know when that's going to happen. So how, Every single time it happens. So how do and you so, have the strength? You, 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 don't, you did not crawl up into a ball and give up. You wrote your book. You are a no, successful I mean, producer. I, you know, I made a decision when I was in my 20s that if I was going to stay alive, and I do think that it's a miracle that I'm still here, you know, if I was going to stay alive, I knew I needed help to manage this. And so I have been in therapy for the last 25 years. Um, I believe that it is the greatest gift that any of us can give to ourselves. Um, and so I decided that if I was going to stay, I wanted to live a beautiful, full, happy life. And so I do the work all the time, every day, to make sure that I process the things that are out in the world that might try to steal my joy. Wow. So that's family. Um, Was school... That is... That's family. Was school any better, worse, indifferent? I mean, you know, at... My secular school, I went to a really special secular school. I went to the first magnet school in Chicago. And so the school by design was diverse. That having been said, I was still one of the few biracial kids. You know, there were a lot of black kids. There were a lot of white kids. But I was one of the few that was actually biracial back Again, it was the early 70s. Um, School to school, you know, I had friends like everybody else had friends. Hebrew school, youth group, summer camp, um, you know, there was, I, I did have friends, and I was very active and involved on every level. You know, I was president of my confirmation class and president of the youth group. Um, there were always people who had something to say, normally behind my back. Um, nobody wanted to dance with the girl with the afro when everybody was bar and bat mitzvahed. You know, there, right. there were challenges, but, but again... Back then, because nobody talked about it openly, most of it happened when they thought I wasn't listening, which, of course, I was. And even recently, someone that I had grown up with looked at me at an event, and and this person said, you know, I just, I wonder why we didn't just go up to you and say, you, with the Afro, what's your story? Like, what are you doing here? And I looked at this person, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I looked at this person, and I said, you didn't say it to my face because you were saying it behind my back. 
Well, the the, the point would and have been if they the would have been drained out of their all the color drained out of their face. You know. Yeah, because because um, they weren't they did not have the strength of character or the honesty to go ahead and say who are you, and 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 who cares is really like it's almost sad. I think who because cares it, is the bigger question. I mean, who cares should be the bigger question. Who am I should have nothing to do with the color of my skin or which God I pray to in that way. Agreed. It should be about who I am as a human being. Um, but unfortunately, like I said, when you when you exist in a form that tends to defy the easy check marks on the on the you know list of of things that people can easily get comfortable with, people don't and people don't ask who you are. They ask what you are. They ask why you are. They don't get to the who because they're more consumed with trying to figure out why I could possibly be brown um, and praying to this God as opposed to a different one. It's more of like curi- it makes you a curiosity, which w- which was a terrible thing. But you would you would at least have hoped, um, as as difficult as parents can be, because they're a different generation and they decide they're supposed to tell their children uh, who's this one, who's that one, or what's this, and the kids just repeat what they hear at home. But at least in your own age group, was it? I mean, was it better? Or are you saying it wasn't really better at all? No, it wasn't better at all. Of course not. And remember, kids kids learn what their parents teach them. And that's and the sad so, part. Yeah, kids kids steep in what their parents, their families, their environments teach them. And so, I mean, I didn't know, I didn't understand that I looked different from my family until a girl who was my age that I used to play with, you know, I was six or seven years old, pointed it out. And she pointed it out because her parents said that I didn't look like my family because I had, a, um, you know, a different mother and my mother didn't want me. And so they gave me to this family. I mean, it was it was a little girl who told me that, not an adult. And that little girl learned that at home. And she didn't say your friend very long afterwards. Or maybe she did. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, she did not. <laughs> no. <laughs> we didn't play together after that. Do you look back, did you have, again now, as an adult, hopefully, which we'll talk about, you have friends, but as a child, did you have any friends that you could confide in, talk to, feel that you that they felt that you were an equal? I, I believe that people, again, to be clear, I had friends, I've always had friends, um, but nobody talked about these things. And so I did not talk about these things with my friends. Um, I'm only talking about these things at all now. So as a child, I didn't talk about these things. We talked about it at home, but I was not, you know, if we're out on the playground, we're, we're playing kickball. We were not. And I, I would like to think that anyone who has truly ever been my friend would, of course, consider me to be their equal. There are plenty of people who have looked down on me in my life, but those people were never my friends. Right, right. And, you know, there's a, there's a mission that talks about you have to, like, acquire a friend. Not about being friendly, but uh, yeah. acquire a friend takes a give and take effort on both sides, where both sides, the word is respect. Right? If you can't respect me, you're not going to be my friend. That's right. And, and what I, I, I hold great store by the things that we call one another. Friend means a great deal to me. The word rabbi 
means a great deal to me. The word family means a great deal to me. Um, and so I don't use any of those terms loosely. The people that I call my friends love me wholly, and I love them that way. Wow. Um, I do not, I know a lot of people, but I don't call everyone friend. So now as an adult, and all the different stories in the book, that's, uh, again, the, with the book we're discussing with Mara is The Color of Love by Mara Bigad. Pick it up. It's an easy read. It's, a, it's an important read, I think, is really the word I'm looking for. Because we pretend that, uh, that that kind of racism is not out there, and it's not true. It is out there. Look, in Detroit, I'm from Detroit, there are many now. Now, actually, even in the schools, um, there are, but they're all, they're, they're all converts. None of them were born Jewish. I mean, their parents converted, so now they're Jewish. But there's, there's black children, white children. There's all kinds of children now in the schools. It's not a lot diverse, but it's becoming diverse, something that you didn't experience at all. Well, I can walk down on the street on Chavez, and I'll be saying good Chavez to, to both because it's, you know, times have changed. But you were, were really on your lonesome on that one. But, um, but now as an adult, um, has being mixed race affected your, your romantic life as well or that you were able to get past? Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that being, well, I mean, I guess being biracial has affected my romantic life. I have never had a proper boyfriend. Um, I've never been with a man who has been willing to sort of love me out in the daylight or bring me home to meet his family. Um, you know, for black men, the struggle, and I do think that it's a generational thing. Like, I think if I were 25, there would be some some differently open hearts and minds about this. But you know, I'm 50. And so men that are my age, the response tends to be for black men, they would prefer that I be Christian or if they're Muslim, be Muslim, which obviously is not something that's going to happen. And for Jewish men, there is a palpable discomfort. And, you know, there's always been this, this need for Jewish men to feel like they can explain me because I'm biracial. Um, and so I've never had a proper boyfriend. I, I joke all the time that by now I should be on my second husband. <laughs> um, but, you know, my brother and sister both met their spouses as teenagers. And that isn't an experience I've ever had. So dating has been incredibly hard for me. And, you know, now that I'm 50 and in Hollywood, that's, I may as well be 50 in dog years here. <laughs> that's a, there, there's now an age issue that is also not, you know, not necessarily helpful. But, um, yeah, no, it's been very hard. Well, hopefully, hopefully through your book tours and people reading the book and listening to our conversation, that right one will wake up and say, raise his hand and say, pick me. <laughs> you know, it, it's very funny. I, um, I, I, like I said, I believe in love and I'm hopeful and I don't believe that, that I'm not supposed to have a romantic love, a husband in this life. Um, but I think also that I had to be this version of me to be ready for him. And so I'm happy to be a late bloomer as long as the flower is gorgeous. Yes, the flowers will be most beautiful. I, I could pick flowers. I just don't know which ones you like. It didn't say in the book. <laughs> but um, <Thank> you. <laughs> whatever. Um, so, okay, so now that you've written the book, we, we, we've talked – um, you're certainly a person that's experienced a lot, a lot in her lifetime. Um, are you doing anything now trying to connect both worlds? 
Um, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. I don't consider myself to have multiple worlds um, any more than I consider myself to have multiple parts. Like people will ask me often, well, how does the Jewish part of you deal with this? Or the black part of you deal with this? I am black and white and Jewish, and that is my wholeness. So I, being whole in that, I only have one world. And, um, and that's been a real, a real comfort for me. It took me a long time to figure out, because society does try to tell you that you have to pick this or you have to pick that. And, like, I have been encouraged to just pick a side, so to speak. And I, I finally understand that it, there aren't sides. It's my wholeness in these things. So I don't have to connect any world because I only have one world. And I'm very happy and comfortable in it. Um, you know, and part of that does mean I no longer seek the approval of the masses, right? I understand that in every group of people, there are some wonderful people and some not so wonderful people, right? Yes, definitely. I, I let each person come to me as they are and I respond in kind. Amazing. That is such a good answer. And I'm sure you're going to get your Thank book. You. Tour, you're going to get your book tour out here to Detroit, where I can meet you in person. Maybe have a cup of coffee. I actually, I was in Bloomfield Hills. Really? Um, at the yes, I was at the Jewish Book Festival. I did not I know. I want to say, I it may have been like Octoberish or early November, yeah. but I was I was in uh, I was in Bloomfield Hills, and I'm hoping to come back. So if cool. I do, I will let you know. That's perfect. That's, I may have seen posters, mm-hmm. but I didn't know who you were. Now I know. Now um, you know. <laughs> Mary, this has been so much fun. I want to. I want you to leave us with two things. First, yeah, you can decide which is more important. First of all, how can we get your book, uh, The Color of Love? And secondly, what would you like to leave us with? Um, okay, I will. I will answer the questions in order. My book is for sale everywhere. Books are for sale, so certainly at bookstores, um, the independent ones, and the bigger chains, and also online. Um, it's available on Amazon, it's available on Barnes and Noble, and some independent bookstores also offer it online. So you can get, you can get the old fashioned paper copy, you can get the audible version, or you can get it via Kindle. Um, and what would I want to leave people with? Um, I think, I think I just go back to what we talked about at the beginning. Love is a choice that we can make no matter what. And I think that there are some people that mistakenly think that being loving and kind just makes you weak, especially in the face of a bully, right? Sure. Love is a superpower. Love is my superpower. It is why I am here. And so I show that love to myself and I show that love to others. And I believe that it is, it is uh, the strongest choice I will ever make that I will always make. And that it's, and we can all do that. Mara, this was so much fun. I love it. And I'm using your word. I love <laughs> Thank it. Thank you. This was really fun. I, I appreciate um, your candor. I appreciate your strength of character. I appreciate you being willing to go through certainly some things that are painful. Um, and I hope my real goal is that people, well, there's two goals. One is that everybody can learn from your story. And two, of course, they should go buy your book. So, Mara, if you're ever in Detroit, please Link to me, you know how you, you, you have my, uh, if you don't have my email, uh, Jacqueline has it, and we'll be in yeah. touch. 
Thank you so much for having me, Rabbi. And hopefully we will get to get together in Detroit very soon. Yes, be well. Thanks so much. You too. Have a good day. Yes, you too. Wow, wow. Great book. Amazing interview. Um, just an amazing person. Just to, I mean, it, it's, it's painful to, to really think about how we, um, I don't want to include myself because I don't think that's the kind of person I am, but how people can treat other people and how hurtful people could be. And we have to open up our eyes. It's a, it's a wide world. It's a, certainly Jewish is a religion. It is not a race. Anybody who thinks it a race is clearly mistaken. Uh, first and foremost, because uh, you can convert. The fact that anybody can be Jewish, the fact that you can live anywhere, come from anywhere. Being Jewish is not a race. Even though we say racism, it is not a race. It is a religion. So it's an important thing to think about. But we got some time left. So uh, how's my poster doing? Let's do my poster first. My poster is ready. So um, we're up to the letter Yud. And I think actually we got a great word um, for this week. So the word... The uh, Yud, by the way, it's about the letter. It is the 10th letter. Um, its numerical value is therefore 10. Um, it's the smallest letter. Technically, if you just like make a dot of ink, you have created the letter Yud. It's a very simple letter. And there's not too many difficult laws in how to write it. It could look like a circle, like a box, like a line, whatever you want it to be. So it makes a, a Y sound. And my word this week is Yedid. Yedid means friend, How, but it's actually a fascinating word because Yedid is actually made up of two words, Yad, twice, Yad, Yad. Yedid, so you have the letter Yud, the letter Dal, then repeated. Yad is a hand. So when we stick out our hands and we're friendly, when we hold friend, our hands because we're all together, we are friends. And that was what I wanted, and I did spend a lot of time with Mara as we discussed the, uh, the whole idea of friendship, what friendship is. Friendship is not talking behind my back. Friendship is sticking out your hand. We're facing each other. We're holding each other's hands. We're taking care of each other. So I think you did, which means friend, and comes from the word hand, is really a great word um, for our word of the week. So with our couple minutes left, um, you know, I actually had a couple of stories I wanted to say, but I thought this one would be uh, would be a good story. It actually has to do with one of the plagues. So um, on the previous show, we talked about the plague of frogs. This week's Torah portion is all about the ten plagues, or at least the first seven of them. And one of the plagues, actually the middle plague, plague number five, is called Dever, or simply called plague. And it was an amazing, um, powerful plague. It's called plague. Um, it was an airborne disease, which only killed animals, but which could have killed everybody. God says, I didn't kill people with it because I wanted the Egyptians to stick around to see my power. The Jewish people could see my power, my strength, and to live to tell, uh, to tell the tale. So Moses warns everybody, if any animals left in the fields are going to die. So the only way your animal would be safe would be if you brought it into the house. Or if you had a barn, a barn would also suffice. The likelihood is in a country like Egypt, most animals live in the fields. Here up in Michigan, I travel through Ohio, you see barns because in cold, icy, snowy weather, you want to protect your animals. You want to keep them warm. In Egypt, you don't got to keep your animals warm. They're outside. So I can't imagine they had too many um, uh, barns. 
In any case, so now in the play, you can only imagine you're bringing the cow inside the house, right? And the cow can't go outside to go to the bathroom. It will die. So you got to decide what's better, having the cow in the house or letting the cow die. So it reminds me of a famous story. It's been rewritten a hundred times. It's a what they call a chelm story. There was a famous uh, poet, Shalom He made fun of Jewish life. And he always had the people were foolish. And he would always make fun of them. But this story is still a funny story. So uh, a man goes to the rabbi and he says, Rabbi, my house is packed. I got kids. They're, they're all over the place. I can't move. I can't breathe. I, I, I can't live. You got to help me out. So the rabbi says, you got a cow? So sure, I got a cow. Bring it in the house. Rabbi, were you, were you paying attention? You listen to me. You bring that cow in the house and then come back to me in a couple of days. Okay, he brings the cow in the house, uh, a bull in a china shop. You can only imagine what that house looked, smelled, felt like. Comes back two days later. Okay, Rabbi, I listened to you. The cow is in the house. Please, please, just what should I do? My house is, it, there's no room. You got any goats? Oh, sure, I got goats. Bring them in. Bring them in, Rabbi. Goats, bring them in. Brings in the goats, and now you can only imagine the goats and the, and the cow and the noise. Comes back a day later, Rabbi, he's having a nervous breakdown. And, uh, okay, and here comes my music. But you can only imagine the rabbi says, okay, take your cows out, take your sheep out, take your goats out, take your chickens out. And then, of course, now the guy has all the room he could possibly need. Well, it's been fun. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors and listeners. I couldn't do without you. Thank you to my wonderful production team today. We have Kelsey, Angel, Stephen, Cole, Andy. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next time, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah and NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.